today, the, the Reverend Dr. Drew Smith, who is Professor of Urban Ministry and um, also um, the Director of the Metro Urban Institute at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. I have on my Pittsburgh Theological Seminary bow tie today for the occasion. Um, some of you, I hope, have seen um, the story and video that we did with Drew over the summer. I will paste the link there. Or just just Google it. Um, just a beautiful. As I wish we could have actually uh, published that entire interview, but we've got you know a few minutes of it. Um, but thanks for making time today, Drew. Um, I guess it looks like you may be in your office at the seminary. I am. It's good to be with you, Lee. <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much. Drew is uh, been um, at Pittsburgh Seminary since 2013. He has a concurrent appointment. I love this uh, title, the Professor of Extraordinarius uh, at the uh, University of South Africa in Philosophy and Systematic Theology. He has been the scholar residence at Morehouse College. He's had appointments at Emory University, um, the Evan Garrett Evangelical um, Theological Seminary in Evanston, University of Virginia, uh, the Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Cameroon. Um, here's one of my favorites. You were a faculty and residence and fellow of the Sages uh, program at Case Western Reserve, where my son is a senior, and he's finally taking his Sages class this semester. Drew. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> so, um, please read. I will put a link. Um, just beautiful bio and your publications and presentations across the country and the world are really worth learning about. He teaches. Of course, urban ministry at Pittsburgh Seminary and um, in the DMIN program as well, but also courses like Black Electoral Politics and um, Ministry Urban Change in the Global South, um, uh, Church and Society, uh, Racial and Ethnic uh, Politics. Um, you really have a political science background, right? That's and. That but is correct. Uh, my PhD studies were in right, political science. Right. An MDiv um, from Yale uh, University of Venice School. You're, you're, you have a, um, an MA and a PhD from Yale as well. Um, uh, Bachelor of Science from, from uh, Indiana University. In um, English and secondary education. I like that. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, my, my initial thought was that I would be teaching in the high school and in some urban context. Uh, where I could uh, be interacting with kids uh, who uh, would, would hopefully get turned on by uh, the, the kinds of things we'd be discussing in class and pave a future for themselves coming out of those, those, those learnings. It, it reminds me one of my um, mentors along the way, a general presbyter at the time in uh, Presbyterian of the Peaks, George Goodman. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with him, but he was in Greensboro. Um, and in uh, higher education, um, and it was in the middle of the civil rights movement. A lot was going on in Greensboro, if you might remember, and he got very involved, and it, that was part of his call to seminaries. Like, I, I, I want to be more engaged, and um, so there, I think there is something about it. I've thought about going the other way myself, like maybe I'll retire and, you know, go back, go into teaching. It's, it's such a, a big need uh, right now. I'm so grateful for teachers. Indeed, Lee, absolutely. Um, we're talking about economics um, and U.S. Uh, religious affiliation where uh, Drew has done some research of late. I think there's a publication in prog progress, including, I think, already a published article along these lines. 
Um, but before we jump into that, I'd love to hear, I think our guests love to hear, sort of what is in the center of your call. Um, and uh, I think uh, Katie Geneva Cannon asked that question well, is what is the work your soul must have, Drew? Indeed, and, and that's, a, that's a beautiful question that she, that she poses. And to some extent, Lee, it, it kind of links back to what we were just talking about with the secondary education component in urban schools. So I, I, I grew up in, in a very urban context uh, in Indianapolis. And uh, although uh, I was very much rooted in church life, my father was a pastor, my mother uh, could have been a pastor herself had she not been Baptist. Um, so very much rooted in, in the church growing up, but also very much rooted in my urban neighborhood context where a lot of my close friends were not centered in church life did not have much exposure to church life. And uh, as a teenager, when, when I moved into, was, was brought by the Spirit into a much fuller commitment to, to Christian life and even to ministry, not necessarily in conventional understandings of ministry, but ministry, uh, that kind of priesthood of all believers concept. But when I was, when I was pulled much further in that direction, what became very clear to me at that point was that a lot of the friends that I had come become close to in my neighborhood would in some respects be left out of that. They, they were not part of that church life that I was so much rooted in. And, and frankly, uh, from a cultural perspective, the, 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 um, the odds did not look good that they would uh, find themselves as comfortably engaged in the life of the church as I had become. So a fundamental question for me that formed at that time in my teenage years is, was, well, how do, how do we present Christianity? How do we present the gospel in a way that is accessible to and relevant to the lives of people who may not have been formed in the church. In fact, who may have been formed in situations uh, that were in some ways fundamentally antagonistic to some of the presuppositions on which church life is formed. And, and, and part of those presuppositions, part of that, that sort of foundational stuff of American Christianity has a lot to do with economic location. Wow. Okay. And, and so a question for me throughout has been how, how do we wrestle how do we wrestle with that issue of of the ways that that economic structures and economic life form us into a kind of social identity that either predisposes us favorably toward church life or predisposes us unfavorably from church life. So if I'm not if I'm not really doing that work, Lee, if I'm not wrestling with that effectively, if I'm not if I'm not getting closer to some ways to understand that better, then I feel like I'm not doing that work that I've been called to do. Well, and what a gift for for pastors and others who come to learn at Pittsburgh Seminary um, and other places where you engage uh, to bring kind of bring those economic 
social, political, contextual uh, questions, racial questions, um, you know, to the forefront um, in, in, with a theological, I feel like with a theological lens. I, I'm, you made me think of, we was talking about secondary education, my senior in high school, um, I think I, th I can't remember if it was a U.S. <clears throat> history or world history because we we thought of it definitely contextually. You know, we were reading, you know, at that time news magazines and such. And each week we had to write a paper with you know uh, with an economic, uh, social, and political sort of analysis. You know, but I hear you. There, mm. there's you, you would see those as all theological questions as well as in those Absolutely. disciplines, right? I mean. That's that's part Absolutely. of what you bring. I mean, um, and and context. There's some contextuality. I hear. I see that in your mm -hmm. the courses you offer and in your writing. That um, uh, the the contextual question, economic reality, political reality, social reality, for depending on where someone is located, and that's not just a geographical mm -hmm. location, mm -hmm. but it, it, there's some geographical location in there too. Absolutely. That really matters. I mean, that's. Uh, Wow, I mean, yeah, those are fundamental, fundamentally theological questions, but but with all sorts of sociological mm -hmm. ramifications. Um, Paul talks about being all things to all people, so that for the sake of the gospel, some might be reached. Uh, that 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 verse suggests to me the importance of us uh, wrestling with where people actually live. I mean, how they actually inhabit. Mm -hmm the world and, and, and the lives that people actually live into, understanding those locations in ways that allow us to be to, be to them uh, a kind of, of uh, ally and, and friend to, to the things that are important to them, the things that they live into, so that they might be able to see through our efforts to come alongside the worlds they actually inhabit the things that we're trying to convey in terms of the gospel message. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, uh, I hear from you, um, not just a sort of political um, sort of commitment, but it is a political commitment, but that's, it's a faith commitment. Who in Indeed. this? Um, Peter Berger, uh, one of the great sociologists and sociologists of religion taught at Boston University for so many years, um, had a very important quote along these lines in his book. Um, uh, well, one of his one of his books. I, I I can't recall the title offhand, but the the quote was that sociology has relevance to theology to the extent that theology is premised upon sociologically disconfirmable presuppositions. Mm. Now, what he's what he's saying there to me is that so much of our theological understanding is indeed premised upon, upon certain kinds of, of factors and ideas that may be sociological in nature. So to the extent that, that, we, that, we, that we suggest that theology is, is, um, is, is disconnected from one social location, that, that theology is just in the air, that, that things of the spirit are just in the air, and it doesn't matter what kind of world you inhabit, uh, 
you, you come to those issues and presentations of, of Christian life and the Christian gospel uh, in, in ways similar to everybody else. Mm-hmm. That's a presupposition. And it's a sociological right. presupposition. Right. And, and that, that presupposition has to be, has to be right. challenged because when we look at the sociological realities, when, when you just do a sociological reading of how people form identities, how people form cultures, the social construction of realities, those are sociological factors that contribute to that, to, 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 to those dynamics. And, and as theologians, as ministers, as Christians, we have to be equally attentive to those issues if we're concerned about our presentation of the gospel and how it may be received by So a lot of our guests are pastors or church leaders, um, and I want to get to the economics question, but I think it comes out here is, what are the resources you would point people to um, to help them understand those kind of contextual, uh, sociological kind of realities around them? I mean, that's beyond just their, their own personal sort of experience um and maybe you're gonna maybe you're gonna invite them to do some of that too but um i'm wondering what are the resources you would go to i mean is this census data is this um the particular research plate uh points where you would invite people to look um how, how does that analysis sure, how do you sure. how do you get toward having the data so you can move toward the analysis and 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 then move toward you know okay what does that mean for my proclamation of the gospel here in this place Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, well, th- there are good scholarly resources, indeed. Uh, and, the, and the book I was trying to think of by Peter Berger is uh, the, the Sacred okay. Canopy, one of his classic, uh, one of his classic presentations. But you, you have, I mean, so much of the, um, the, 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 the kind of congregational studies mm-hmm. literature. People like Nancy Ammerman and others. I mean, her, her. Um, uh, her classic uh, sort of work text, uh, studying right. congregations, that that outlines methodologies and and tools for for ministers and ministries to be able to to lean more fully into the the the, the physical and social contexts of the of those ministries. To, to, I mean, the, she outlines ethnography and ethnographic strategies and methodologies, um, survey research, questionnaire research, focus group research. In other words, sort of moving out into context, coming alongside people and uh, honing those listening and observation skills that allow us to see more clearly into the lives of others into the, the, the realities inhabited by the people outside our church walls. So, so fundamentally, we're talking about listening and observation skills uh, to the extent that, that uh, we view all of the world and all of our ministry through the lens of our ecclesiological spaces, our, our congregational spaces, our theological understandings, then we're going to miss an awful lot about what's actually going on around us. We have to be able to see the world through the eyes of the people that we're trying to reach out to. And so to develop those kinds of, of listening and observational skills are important. And there's lots of great literature on that. Ethnography 
as pastoral practice is a book that I use in my contextual analysis course uh, by uh, Mocelli. Um, uh, and again, Nancy Ammerman's Studying Congregations uh, text. Lots of good work out there that helps people to, to sort of look at that. And, and then some of the urban ministry literature itself has been helpful. I mean, I, I edited, co-edited a volume uh, that came out a few years ago called Urban Ministry Reconsidered. Mm -hmm. We, a lot of the contributors to that volume that I invited to uh, participate in, in that particular uh, collection are looking at these urban ministry issues from a very contextual lens, uh, wrestling with some of those issues that deal with systems and structures. So, I mean, there, there's literature out there and, and there are there are ways to uh, to tool ourselves so that we can be more attentive and more receptive. I to was those thinking dynamics. they're probably partners too. I mean, um, folks in social work, folks in and nonprofit ministry. I, my um, my partner um, teaches a class on theology from the margins, and part of their process is they participate in the homeless census each year. You know, and um, mm -hmm. It's sort of, uh, it's not formally ethnographic work, but I mean, when you're, we're, you're looking around to see where homeless people are, you know, people are experiencing homelessness or living, you, you start to get a feel a little bit more for their stories. I mean, even on social media, well, I'm noticing there's, there's folks, um, this one next door, which is kind of, kind of hyper local, um, you know, you'll see stories mm -hmm. of like, hey, we're tracking this particular person experiencing homelessness is normally at the bus stop and, and they're tracking, you know, uh, what he's trying to do and accomplish. I mean, it's, it's having sort of those eyes open and listening. I, I have, I have friends out there. I'm thinking particularly one Lindsay Conrad, who, who, um, th those people experience, especially the ones who are experiencing homelessness, I think in particular, she, she is a, literally a companion alongside and tracks them across the country, um, you know, on their trains or wherever they're going, you know, um, and locally. But um, that's really helpful. Now, this work around economic restructuring and, 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 and noting the inequalities and addressing that and clergy advocacy um, mm -hmm. in that and those and their religious affiliation part of, of these questions, what would you say about um, about those things that you're discovering or you're hoping for or, or you would encourage uh, leaders to consider? Indeed, indeed. Well, th there's a lot of attention that's being drawn to the, uh, the declining religious affiliation within the U.S. More and more, and more uh, nuns, right? More and more nuns. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, Non-affiliated, no particular religious preference. That that uh, percentage uh, has grown from 17 percent in 2009 to 26 percent in 2019. Uh, attention's been given to the fact. I mean, recent and, and that was Pew data. There, recent Gallup poll. Uh, came out uh, where it noted that now less than 50% of Americans indicate belonging to a religious congregation. This is for the first time in the 80 years that Gallup has been tracking wow. these sorts of things, that percentage has fallen below 50%. Now, what's interesting there 
is, is that uh, it, what's interesting is when you sort of disaggregate some of that data based upon upon economic factors. Oh, so see. the 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 uh, when when we talk about the the religious disaffiliation, the the, the nuns, the the persons who are not affiliated with with uh, former religious life or with congregational life, we almost always talk about that, the, the, the sort of narrative surrounding that is almost always related to what's occurring amongst younger generation, college-educated mm -hmm. Americans. So the, the lament is primarily over the fact that we're losing our, our younger generation who are matriculating through higher education, they're leaving those higher educational contexts and not returning to or are no longer interested in formal religious life. Uh, to the extent that they're involved in religious life, it's primarily informally, virtually, but not within the context of our congregational and ecclesial spaces. What we don't talk about is that even within that data, um, about 30% of those who are indicating no religious, no formal religious affiliation, about 30% of those are uh, at income levels of $30,000 a year or less and a high school education or less. Wow. So, so that's important to note. There's also data that's shown that um, over the last couple of decades, the the percentage of churchgoers in general earning $25,000 or less has declined from about 20% 20 years ago to about 10%, meaning that poorer Americans are attending formal religious activities in declining numbers. Mm -hmm. They probably got to go to work, Drew. They probably got that hour. Well, well yeah, I mean, the, the, there is that factor, but I think there's even a larger cultural factor. And, and, and so that, that actually gets picked up on by a study that I did about 20 years ago, uh, where I looked at, uh, I, I surveyed over a thousand residents of low-income housing complexes in four cities, Indianapolis, Denver, Hartford, and Camden. I also surveyed and interviewed uh, pastors from about 150 congregations that were within a mile radius of those housing wow. complexes. And I asked the, the residents. Yeah, that's a methodology. <laughs> yeah, that's a methodology. Exactly right. So I asked the residents a lot of questions about their, first of all, their income level, the, the sort of demographic information large percentages were un unemployed or underemployed, large percentages, high school or less in terms of educational attainment. Um, these were all folks, again, living in low-income housing complexes. I asked them about their, whether they were members of a church. Uh, Two-thirds or more said that they were not. I asked them if they had attended a religious service within the previous year. Two-thirds or more said that they had not done so more than once uh, the previous year. And, and you also have to factor in the fact that when these interviews are being done face-to-face -face at each person's door, there, there is that embarrassment factor. So 
people may not have attended right. at all, but right. say, well, I think I went once, right? So you have to factor that in. It could have been a wedding or a funeral or... Exactly right. Like Bottom line is vast majority of this population, of this demographic, mm -hmm. had no formal involvement with religious life during that previous year. And, and when asked about what prevented them from being more involved, most of these issues were cultural. Mm. Some said, well, um, I don't have the right clothes to wear. I don't know anyone there. I think I might feel uncomfortable in that situation. I don't really understand a lot of what takes place in those contexts. Those are cultural issues. Right. Wow. And ones that congregations and congregational leaders could change, right? Indeed. At, at least be attentive to in ways that we wrestle affect what wrestle seriously and systematically with those issues mm -hmm. now i'm not of the mind that that um that these are necessarily things that we can just go fix <laughs> not that you simple. know these these are deep-seated issues poverty is deepening in the united mm -hmm. states and it's a different kind of poverty than, than even 50 years ago i mean 50 years ago i think we had a better shot as as church folks to be able to bridge some of that social distance between what goes on in our churches and what goes on outside our churches in low-income urban neighborhoods. I think we had a better shot at it because poverty was different then. The, the, the antagonisms were less fierce between the, the urban poor and our institutional life in general. I think our institutional life over this past 50 years has, has shown itself to be even less attentive to, less sympathetic to the issues and the realities that, that the urban poor are wrestling with and living into. And they're not oblivious to that fact. The urban poor is not oblivious to that fact. Uh, and, and, and there's just been more agency on the part of, of, of urban, of low-income urban dwellers to convey and to communicate and to, uh, to consolidate collectively around the set of cultural issues that are more representative of their life. So, so more opportunities, more platforms for group expression and self-expression. Mm -hmm. uh, social media. Right, right. A whole hip-hop culture, hip-hop platforms that allow for expression coming directly from those contexts that, that sort of affirms and reinforces some of the cultural realities that are inhabited by, by that demographic. And, and in ways that say, we don't have to hide from the world that we actually do live in. And, and we can say to the rest of the world, hey, this is our reality. You don't get it. And, and you, you're not sympathetic to it. And we're going to, we're going to live into our space in ways that, that affirm who we are, mm -hmm. even when you don't affirm who we are. So, I mean, it's a different level of antagonism and, and, and self-conception, um, self self-understanding. And, and then the, the fact that this is now generational, we've got two or three generations right. uh, where, where the, 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 that have lived into this growing isolation and concentration of poverty that was identified very systematically by uh, sociologist William Julius Wilson, now at Harvard for many years at the University of Chicago. His two classic texts, The Truly Disadvantaged, 
uh, published in 1987, follow-up text, uh, When Work Disappears, published in 1993. In both of those texts, he outlines very carefully and very systematically the ways that urban, black urban neighborhoods changed from the 1950s and 60s into that sort of post-civil rights uh, period. So prior to the civil rights movement where, where segregation forced uh, African-Americans across class demographics to inhabit the same physical and social space. Middle, middle class blacks living right next door to lower income blacks. Mm -hmm. You know, black doctors and PhDs and, right. and ministers living next door to underemployed and, un and unemployed African-Americans where there was there was relationship, there was, there was connectivity, there was mm -hmm. cross-pollination of ideas and cultures. But but once and, and probably parenting and parenting too. <laughs> well, absolutely, absolutely. Neighborhoods were more close knit. Um, but but when when you you get the opening up of society, the exodus of middle class folks from those neighborhoods, the exodus of financial and cultural resources from those neighborhoods, Wilson indicates clearly what you have in those neighborhoods is a concentration and isolation. Mm -hmm. of the urban poor, where culturally they're looking at people who have all the same kind of cultural demographic factors as they do, unemployed or underemployed, undereducated, over-incarcerated, over-criminalized. Hope starts to wane. Well, indeed, I mean, but, but you also get this, this sort of very sort of monocultural mm -hmm. dimension to some extent. Um, where, where that culture grows up in isolation and in gr greater antagonism mm -hmm. to more traditional mainstream American cultures. So the, the, the capacity for churches now to be able to sort of bridge that social distance is more challenging. Not impossible, but more challenging. My bottom line, Lee, is this. I don't think we should sit back in our congregations and wait for folks to come. I don't think that we should sit in our congregations mm -hmm. and believe that all we got to do is tweak a little bit of what we do within within our church culture and church life to make the presentation of the gospel more palatable and accessible to the urban poor. I think we really have to go out of the church, come alongside people in the neighborhoods, uh, not in ways where we're bringing our, right. our wisdom to them, but where we're listening, where we're observing, where we're entering into solidarity, uh, where we're trying to to inhabit the space in ways that show that um, that we're true allies, mm -hmm. and, and then try to grow into relationship, deeper into relationship with people, and and try to craft ministries around that relationality, more boutique ministries. So mm -hmm. so ministries uh, where we're maybe focused on. On, on developing uh, educational skills for people's kids or our, our ministries where we're uh, engaged in, in arts and crafts development, uh, music and artistic expression, right. recreational activities, um, entering into um, public policy and right. social activism alliances. Well, and, it's, and, it, and it sounds like that kind of solidarity, and I can't believe our time is, is gone here, but that kind of solidarity is you enter in as congregational leaders where they need you, where they want you. Exactly. You know, like we need, we're work or whatever they're working on. 
you know, exactly. they're working on affordable housing. They're working on, you know, a, um, I heard Jim Reese talking about his, his early ministry is, is, uh, one of the elders said, we need a baseball team. Mm. <laughs> and he was the pastor and he said, okay, I guess I'm going to be the coach of the baseball team. We're, we're going to get some uniforms. To be all yeah. things to all people, as Paul says. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, there, it's, I smile because, I mean, it gives me joy to think about that, those kinds of possibilities. It's, um, beautiful, joyful work, hard, hard work. If I wanted to, or anybody out there wanted to learn more, I mean, they can come to Pittsburgh Seminary. There's a doctor ministry where you, and there's courses and um, I encourage folks to get to know to know Drew and and the Metro Urban Institute um, I think there's a I was hearing on your new the podcast I'm hoping it continues called doing things differently or doing it differently um, uh, there is a uh, is it a black church studies uh, demon Absolutely. We, we have a new doctor of ministry track uh, intergenerational black church intergenerational studies well, we're trying to wrestle with some of these issues that we're talking about here, Lee. So we, we encourage people to take a look at that at that D-Men track. Uh, take a look at our Metro Urban Institute website. We, we've got some uh, important projects right now that we're in the thick of around um, the economic restructuring of space in, in Metro Urban, uh, Metro Pittsburgh, uh, COVID uh, responsiveness on the part of faith sure. communities in Metro Pittsburgh, so, and violence-related issues. So we're, we're wrestling with some issues and we, we invite people to follow that work and to uh, look for ways to, to join in that work. Uh, visit our website. Well, please, everyone do. And um, you, you've reminded us and all, and I think many folks know, uh, you know the word um, economy and economics is a theological word. We need to reclaim it. It's not just a financial word, exactly right? right. <laughs> and uh, thanks for your leadership in this area. Um, for your partnership, for your mentorship of others, uh, for this conversation today. I'm just so grateful and blessings on you. I invite you, I'm going to invite folks to come back in two weeks. We're still putting together our guest list. I'm sorry I can't confirm who will be with us. We're moving some things around. Um, it's the semester starting, so there's a lot going on. Um, but uh, if you'd be willing to, to bless and send us, Drew, I would be uh, so grateful. Oh, very good. Thank you, Lee. Let us pray. Lord God, we, we come with thankful and grateful hearts for all the ways that you pour out blessings into our lives, all the opportunities you've given us to know you, uh, all the opportunities you've given us to serve you and to serve your people. Now, Lord, continue to lead, guide, direct, and keep us, bless us in the ministries to which you've called us. Bless this, uh, this platform that Lee is so ably uh, overseeing, Lord, and um, all those who are listening. Let us all learn together what it is that you called us to for such a time as this. We ask you all these blessings in the name of the Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 That's beautiful. I appreciate it so much. And... and um so grateful i'm gonna I'm figure out how i stop the live i think this is how i do it so peace be with everyone